This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the Faculty Innovation Center of the University of Texas at Austin. So, Rich, are you comfortable with that, if I do pull that up? Oh, yeah, yeah. Just going to hear some old man stories. Yeah. Ah, very good. You're in good company. Back in the pre-internet. Actually, I brought up my phone I actually used to use when I was a classroom teacher in 1995. It was a Motorola phone, and it's about the same size print-wise as the iPhone, but it's about that thick. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> This doesn't fit in the pocket. That's how big it is. <laughs> who we are as people shapes who we are as teachers. About how our lived experience informs our teaching. Uh, we can be flexible and adapt and change this. You're, you're free to do that. We don't have to have it perfect. We are about getting folks together from all walks of teaching life. The key phrase you, you suggest there is it, it has to be done collectively. We have so much to learn from the other side of campus. <laughs> From the University of Texas at Austin, this is The Other Side of Cannabis. Hi, I'm Stephanie Seidel-Holmston, Assistant Professor of Instruction in the College of Liberal Arts and a Provost Teaching Fellow. And I'm Jen Moon, Associate Professor of Instruction in the College of Natural Sciences. We are so delighted today to introduce our colleague, Dr. Rich Reddick. Dr. Reddick is an Associate Dean for Equity, Community Engagement, and Outreach for the College of Education at the University of Texas at Austin. He is also a professor in the Program in Higher Education Leadership in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy. Dr. Reddick is the faculty co-chair for the Institute for Educational Management at Harvard University and teaches in the Institute for Management Leadership in Education. Dr. Reddick also chairs or co-chairs the Council for Racial and Ethnic Equity and Diversity at UT. And he is a multi-award winning teacher and scholar. He teaches graduate courses on the history of higher education, multicultural modes of mentoring, social and cultural contexts of education, and qualitative research methods. Dr. Reddick conducts ethnographic research on the experiences of faculty of color in predominantly white university settings, mentoring relationships in higher education, black families in American society, and work family balance in junior faculty fathers. Dr. Reddick's research has been highlighted on NPR, the Associated Press, PBS, the BBC, and the Chronicle of Higher Education, and he's authored several articles and books. Fun fact, Dr. Reddick is also a Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy champion. <laughs> Welcome, Rich, to our program. Stephanie and Jen, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction and shout out to rest in peace, Alex Trebek. We lost a good one recently and I've been doing a lot of chats about that. I'm glad to be here. It's a great way to end the week. Cool. Thanks, Rich. So I want to start with some of the things that we have in common. You and I are both from similar areas of Houston, or we know similar areas of Houston, the 610 Loop, the Fifth oh, Ward. Yeah. You work with Montessori for all. My mom was a Montessori teacher. Today, I live in East Austin. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your work in the Fifth Ward of Houston and how those experiences drew you eventually to higher education. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, by way of introduction, you know, I'm a military kid. I'm an Air Force brat. So I went to 12 schools before I graduated from high school. Wow. Um, but I was educated. Well, from military kids, that's not actually a lot. I'm kind of on the low end of most things. You know, kids go to 20 schools or something like that. You know, and of course, you have to explain that. Like, I didn't get in trouble. You know, we just moved a lot. I went to school in East Austin, primarily uh, here in Austin for high school. You know, I think that experience kind of framed my opinions about educational equity because, you know, here you are in the 
Austin, Texas, State Capitol, University of Texas, all these things are in the in the state capital. And I went to school four miles from University of Texas, and there were pretty stark educational issues there. And certainly I had incredible teachers in East Austin. I went to the former Johnston High School. Shout out to the Johnston Rams out there, now Eastside Memorial. And when I came to UT, for whatever reason, I don't think I ever articulated I wanted to be a teacher, but I certainly was thinking about educational equity and inequity. And so I was volunteering and doing all kinds of things like that. In fact, when I was a senior or junior, I don't remember what year it was, we started a mentoring program at Johnston High School with Texas Blazers. Texas Blazers was brand new. We was like, we'll start a mentoring program at Johnston and, and it's still going on, which is kind of mind blowing. Almost 30 years later. Yeah, that, that was my mindset. So I applied for Teach for America and they were going to send me to the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas, which I thought was fine. I didn't really mind. And I got a phone call from the people there. They were like, look, uh, you can go to the Rio Grande Valley, but you did talk a lot about African-American youth and mentoring, and you're not going to see a lot of African-American youth in the Valley. And if you want to, we can reassign you to Houston. And I looked at the map and I realized that Houston was closer to Austin. The time I was dating a girl who lived in Austin, I'm like, well, you know, that might work a little bit better. So that's the choice I made, and I ended up in the fifth ward. Oh, happy story. I did marry that girl, by the way. Well done. In the house right that's now. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I can hear at least two children outside making noise. I think she's here. Anyway, I was assigned to teach at a school called E.O. Smith Educational Center in the fifth ward community. And E.O. Smith, uh, it's kind of interesting you're bringing this up because yesterday I was giving one of these campus uh, racial geography tours that Ted Gordon has pioneered. And so Dr. Gordon kind of told me, he's like, well, Rich, you can do these too. And so Eric Tang asked me to give a tour and we walked past the Barbara Jordan statue. And I had to point out to the students that I taught at the school that Barbara Jordan attended. And of course, not when she was a student there, but that was the community I, I taught in. And it turns out that my best friend's uncle runs a program called Fifth Ward Enrichment. So I got to know the community really well. And it's one of the most historied communities in Houston. I mean, virtually every Black leader in the community is either from Fifth Ward or Third Ward. And so anyway, I, I absolutely loved getting to know my students and their families. I loved it so much. I also realized that I felt constrained about sort of the pressure and testing in Houston in the 1990s. It was a lot. And it seems like we were spending all our time preparing for testing and those kinds of things and less opportunities to really get to know the students. You know, you had to spend time after school and so on and so forth. But I also realized that even though I kind of found a niche teaching fourth grade, I never saw myself as an elementary school teacher. I thought I was going to be a high school teacher, you know, dead poet society. That was BB. And, and so I, I figured I might go and do this higher ed thing. And my mentor, Brenda Burt, who just retired from UT a few years ago, had always told me, you know, you need to come back to UT and take my job. And she says, you have to go get a master's degree. I'm like, that sounds like more school. And, you know, it, it's kind of funny to say a professor, like, you don't want to go to school. I'm like, no, I was done. And I was like, more school. Okay, so I can do a master's. You know, I can, so I did a master's at Harvard. It, it took me about a year to do. I worked at MIT. And I worked at MIT at a time when there was everything happening with alcohol education and hazing. And it was like a laboratory for everything that happens in the student experience. So I had a lot of experiences in that year I was there. And then I immediately uh, went to work in California at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which is really interesting too, because on that job, my first professional job, I met two or three people I still know today and I work with today. So Dr. Juan Gonzalez, who's 
my colleague in the uh, Department of Education. He was my vice president of student affairs. Uh, Sancia Reagan's Lily was working there as well. I got to know Sancia when I was a brand new professional. And I found this out very recently, but Chris Dalconti, our uh, athletic director, his wife was a professor in the College of Science and Math, which I worked with as oh a hall gosh. director. So I'm fairly certain. And, you know, we have this like talking about the places and someone's supposed to hate. So we, we clearly cross paths a couple of times. So it's like that little place has all these people at UT there. And so Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, then I worked at Emory for a year. And I was asked to come and give like some thoughts about my experience as a master's student at Harvard. And I went to the event and I'm like, yeah, that was kind of fun. I kind of missed that. Right. You know, and then somebody said, you should come and visit, you know, and we're having a recruitment weekend. I went there and I'm like, I kind of missed doing the grad school thing. And I didn't get to finish all the books I wanted to read as a master's student. And I, I more or less was you should apply. So I was like, I'll apply, but I probably won't get in this year. So it'll be good practice. I'll get the GRE done and everything like that was going to happen. So anyway, long story short, I actually did get in. So I had to shift everything and we had moved to Atlanta like for a year. And so we're like, we're going to Boston again. So yeah, that's what happened. And I went there with the full intent of going back to being in the student affairs realm, you know, to be a vice president of student affairs or to be a dean of students. And I was interested in mentoring. But at some point, I kind of realized how important faculty were, like in my development. And I had two great faculty mentors. One was Dean Whitla, who was a professor of practice there, and he does diversity research. And Charles Willie, who was my mentor, and I had written books with Dr. Willie. And the two of them just had such interesting lives. I said, I want to know more about what it is that they do that inspires students to do what they do. And of course, then I find out that there's not really built-in rewards for mentoring in a research-intensive university. It's just something people do because they're good people. And then my advisor, Bridget Terry Long, who's an economist, she said, I love the idea of studying mentoring. That's great, she says, but you're interested in Black faculty mentoring Black students, but I think you need a comparison. You know, can you look at white faculty as well? And I was incensed because she doubled my sample size, right? She's like, go look at white faculty mentors as well. Well, it turns out that I've actually published more on cross-race in cross-gender mentoring, because it is sort of where all of the interests kind of collide. So the issue about we call homophilous mentoring, so, you know, Black faculty mentoring Black students or Latinx faculty mentoring Latinx students, there's a paucity of faculty of color to begin with. And so it leads to the other issue I study, which is cultural taxation. So you have people who have these huge mentoring clothes. So the reality is, how do you figure out or help people who mentor across difference, either race or, or gender. And thanks to Bridget, I did that work. And so when that started happening, people were like, well, how do we help our white faculty who want to work with students of color? I had some answers for that. So that's kind of how I ended up doing this work. But that's basically the pathway from East Austin to Fifth Ward to Cal Poly to Cambridge back to Austin. So it was probably <laughs> a longer answer than you wanted, but that's kind of what happened. It's wonderful. It's it's so fascinating to hear people's own stories and how they get where they are. And we were just thinking about your comments on mentorship, which is, leads me to the next question, which you partially already answered, but I'd like to frame it. I know you spend a lot of time in, in mental space thinking about mentorship. And we have mentorship programs, particularly for tenure track at the university. And I'm thinking now, as you say, about faculty mentorship. Mm-hmm. So mentorship programs are part of our academic culture. But I often wonder, you know, are we on the right track in general about thinking about mentorship? Like, how do we create a supportive 
mentorship environment without being too prescriptive or getting stuck in some narrow perspective about how we should mentor and what we should do. Yeah, it's a great question, Jen. And it's funny because when you study something, two things happen. People think you're good at the thing you study. I'm in the mentoring lab. I'm always learning more about mentorship and being a mentor and being a mentee. And I think the first thing is reciprocity, right? Mentoring is all about reciprocity. Like anybody who comes into a situation and says, I mentor and I feel drained or I'm a mentee and I feel I don't get enough out of this. There's something not quite right because what you should be having is a sort of synergy. Like you feel when you meet with a mentor, you're getting energized and the mentor feels energized as well. Right. And one of the most interesting findings in my work was I would sit and talk with these mentors and they'd like pull the door closed. Like, I don't know if I should say this or not but I'm having way more fun than my, my mentee is. Like, this is just <laughs> the best thing ever, right? I'm having a blast. It's not for me, but my gosh, I'm getting a lot out of this. Is that okay? And I'm like, yeah, that's actually what should be happening. You should be feeling this is a huge benefit to you as well. So I, I think one of the things, Jen, we think about is like, how do we foster reciprocal relationships like that? So we often frame mentoring as something that a senior person does to somebody who's junior, right? You pour all this stuff into an empty vessel. And the reality is I've had the benefit of working with a number of national organizations that have mentoring programs, especially with faculty. And it's funny to hear, you know, senior faculty members as mentors, because they're often quite nervous. They like, I don't want to mess this up. I've got somebody's <laughs> career in my hands. And I tell them two things. I said, well, first of all, you know, the dyadic mentoring that we often talk about one-on-one is kind of passe. We're more into mentoring networks. So we want our mentees to be promiscuous. We want them to have lots of mentors, you know, and, and have lots of people they're talking to. And so that lessens the pressure a little bit on mentors, because when I ask you, it's like, oh my gosh, Stephanie, I want to go to this grad program. Do I go or not? You're like, I don't want to be responsible for telling you the one to go to. But if I'm one of five people you talk to, it feels a little easier. I can be more honest. I can give you my full perspective. The other thing this is the question you were getting at, Jen, I think is, you know, what are the rewards? How do we structure and scaffold mentoring as part of our roles? Because too often it's like you run into great mentors and they're just great because they're great people. There's no training. There's no reward for it. And yes, we do have occasional, hey, you know, you and I are part of this, the Distinguished Service Academy, right? There's, there's things that exist that kind of recognize that. But generally, I really would like us to, and I, I'm also wary of quantifying everything because I do think it's a very qualitative kind of thing. I, I've got this concept I use sometimes about mentoring from a distance, right? There are people I see at annual conferences once a year and 20 minutes with those people and a couple of emails feels to me like really strong mentorship, right? Yeah. So it's not always about number of hours spent or phone calls made. Sometimes it's simply about that person giving you solid advice and responding to you when you need them. And also just knowing what you're doing. I mean, every so often people I'm talking about will drop me a line and said, Rich, I saw you were doing this thing. This is so cool. Are you, you know, how's the family? You're doing well, right? Because mentoring is really about this sponsorship. Like how are you doing in the role and in the work? But how are you doing as a person? How is your family? You know, how's your health? Are you excited about doing things? You know, should you take a break? You know, that kind of stuff like that. So I, I really sort of wonder if we are doing enough in the structure of academia to promote those kinds of interactions, because it seems like they're happening kind of accidentally or because we have somebody who's really engaged. And of course, what that means is that people 
who mentor and are strong at mentoring often have a lot, some mentoring to do. And there's also people who are completely absent from the role. And in some ways, probably good, right? There's some people who you probably don't want, you know, serving as a mentor. But is there a way we can distribute the responsibilities a little more evenly so we can reduce the cultural taxation, the academic housekeeping? You know, those are things that impact faculty of color and women faculty in particular. So those responsibilities are distributed more evenly. And we recognize the people who do the work like that. So yeah, I, I think if I was running the world of academia, you know, I'm getting close, I'm not there yet, but if I, if I was doing that, I would really have us focus a lot more on how do we develop developmental relationships and how do we do the things to make those things thrive and how do we reward and provide time for them as well. Will you tell me more about cultural taxation? I certainly will, yeah. So it's really funny because I first saw this term when I was in graduate school and Amado Padilla, who's a researcher at Stanford, sort of pointed out, he's like, you know, people of color in institutions of higher education are doing a lot of uncompensated labor. And he talked about things like translating documents and translating for people who are visitors who don't speak English as a first language. But then he talked about the mentoring work. And I realized, oh my gosh, I've been creating all this cultural taxation for faculty and staff members around me. You know, diversity committees. Well, you know, we've had it pointed out to us that our diversity is not what it should be. We need people to help us with that. Will you do it for us? And of course, a lot of people will, of course, I want to help with that because I see the problem as well. The problem, Stephanie, is that that work isn't compensated. And compensation, I know, sounds like money, but it's compensation and recognition. And it means that in addition to the job you're paid to do, which is to teach a class or to do research or to administer a program, you're also doing this extra labor. And of course, when it comes to things like promotion and tenure, those activities aren't valued like getting a grant or producing a, an article. So a lot of times people who engage in cultural taxation or culturally taxed, you know, Geneva Gay calls it problematic popularity, you know, the black tax, the brown tax, you often find that you have less things you produce because you've been doing this other work. And the institution doesn't really, on your faculty report, doesn't say how many people you mentored, right? And so oftentimes people are seeing, well, this person only has 10 articles, their peers have 15, so I guess they're not really worthy. So that's really what it comes to be a problem. So most people I've talked to about this, who experience cultural taxation say, you know, it's work, but it's work that I think is important. So I want to do it. The problem is we don't have the metrics in place to, to figure out how to make them count. So this, this summer, Nature uh, did a feature about cultural taxation. It was awesome because it was talking to me and a couple other uh, scholars across you know, the U.S. and in the U.K. and just started this conversation. So you go on Twitter and you like see your name and people are like, we are discussing this in our faculty meeting today. So I'm like, fantastic. That's what we want. We wanted a conversation to start. And one thing I've been talking about is you have to create structures that reward that work. And so I mentioned it before, but I'll mention it again. You know, Jen and I are members of the Distinguished Service Academy. So UT has recognized that that work should be celebrated and, and honored. We need more of those opportunities, though. And there are also people who don't want to do the work, right? Just because they hold a marginalized identity, you know, they might be really interested in ornithology and they're like, you know, I happen to be a person of color, but I don't really understand or know that stuff. So that's not really my jam. And, and so one of the things is also making sure that diversity, equity, and inclusion work is carried by everybody. 
not just people of color, not just people who have titles like mine, but everybody has that as part of their role. And that means the, the work can be easier. It's okay to have people lead those efforts, but it's another thing to say, well, I'm going to go in my lab and lock the door and keep doing what I'm doing and not think about equity and inclusion or making sure that students have access to mentorship. others join Dr. Moore's class on the history of the Black experience. UT is certainly thinking about the experiences of faculty and students of color at the university. What is important to you about efforts to promote inclusion at UT? Well, you know, Stephanie, I think about the fact that most of these efforts have been ongoing for quite some time. So we also should recognize and really honor the folks who've been doing this work. So I mentioned my mentor, Brenda Burt, and Brenda Burke came here in the 1980s, and before her, there was Almitris Duran, and she was here from the 1950s when we had our first Black students at UT. So there's a continual line of people who've been doing, putting efforts forward to ensure that we have a welcoming campus environment. It's a struggle, right? Because rarely is it anybody's primary job to do that. It's usually something you do in conjunction with everything else you do. And so one thing that Dr. Moore's class did is that it kind of got people thinking about the contours of inequity and how it permeates, you know, not just our academic lives, but our social lives, you know, where we live, where we go to school, where our kids go to school. So broadening the conversation is the first piece. So I think giving people the tools, the architecture to talk about inequity is important because a lot, a lot of times people are like, Rich, you gave me a term, cultural taxation, that I didn't really know was a thing. And of course, every person of color, every woman is like, yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> I'm glad you know that now. But that's the first piece of it, right? The second piece, I think, is knowing that we are a work in progress, right? Every time we sort of reach a milestone or we do something better, we realize there are more issues of inequity we need to address. So it's it's kind of a continual, as Dr. King called it, the, the beautiful struggle, right, for equity, right? You're, it's, it's something you're engaged in. And it also means that we're constant learners. I always tell people, like, the word expert, I kind of eschew that because I'm like, look, I'm really engaged in this work, but what I usually find out is that my engagement shows me there's other parts of inequity that we aren't thinking about, whether it's socioeconomic status, gender identity, sexual orientation, immigration status, you name these things, ability status. There are so many axes of identity that people have privileges and disadvantages in. And we need to start thinking about that very broadly. And frankly, one thing I've seen over time which is interesting is that I think people are far more aware of intersectionality and their identities because now they're realizing, well, first of all, I'm seeing people with my identities prosper. That's really encouraging to me. I, I get excited to see that. I, I now think it's possible I can do these things. But then secondly, I also realize because of my identities, I might have more challenges in the way and I want to know how I can overcome them. And, and so that's where we need to be coordinating as a campus and, and really working on structural changes, right? Because, you know, it's, it's, it's great to be a person who's working against these things individually, but the privilege we have as scholars is to actually augment the structures themselves. So the criteria that we use to consider somebody a strong scholar, can it be bigger than just putting great articles into journals? Can it also include mentoring junior faculty and junior scholars and, and students? Shouldn't that be part of it? I mean, so I think that's that's what I think about, the importance of including our efforts to structurally change the academy. Because I think all of us 
come here because somebody inspired us or, you know, not just along the way. And most people would probably say, well, I don't want you to pay me back. I want you to go make things better for the next group that comes through. You know, it's so interesting to hear you say that. And I reflecting on my own experience, maybe Stephanie's too, with that class that Dr. Moore provided as kind of a launching point into a more, a deeper conversation. And it's allowed me to kind of then start the next step and the next step. And so it's not, you know, it's a one and done, of course, as we all know, but just as a, okay, I'm getting, I'm starting to now see through a fog and get some perspective. And now I can continue walking through the, you know, so like now I can sort of see a little bit farther and then, and so Mm -hmm. on. So I think it's been, it's been such a fascinating, you know, nine months or whatever of thinking about this intentionally and just the culture and work, you know, that is needed. I was thinking about, you know, you teach about the history of higher education and I'm thinking so much now about how we're reinventing a lot. I don't know if reinventing is the right word. I guess I'm thinking about being online and the attention now spent on how are we structuring our classes to be of most benefit to students? What are the pros and cons of being in an online environment? Because I know there are many pros as much as we like to grouse about the cons. I'm wondering if I can ask you about your perspective. Like what are some key lessons given your perspective of seeing the history of higher education? Where are we making progress? Where are we continuously repeating the same mistake? It's a dissertation question right there. I know, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> but it's a great Whatever question. part of that you want. <laughs> It's, it's a great question, and I really have enjoyed teaching history of higher ed this semester, but probably because of the novelty uh, of the situation we find ourselves in. And obviously, the pandemic is a huge tragedy, right? I mean, but it, it does mean that we can start talking about issues of access, because higher education's history is what to do with access and how limited it was, right? And we start with these sort of concentric circles of being privileged, you know, moneyed class, being male, being white, you know, all these kind of things that kind of radiate out, being Christian and, and all these different things. And over time, the concentric circles start including more and more people. But the problem, of course, is that the structures don't change in the middle. So we can talk about the Harvard College, 1650 had the charter for Native American students, but only three students finished. And they certainly did not have a culturally affirming experience there, right? So one of the things I think is like, does technology in some ways provide access in a way that's different? So for instance, a lot of us growls about having people with their cameras off or whatever like that. But it also means that now students who, you know, maybe couldn't afford to, or would have a great financial cost to move up to Austin and live on West Campus are able to do it from Laredo, you know, or from Del Rio, right? It also points out some inequities that exist. Like, so for instance, some of my students are like, well, Dr. Reddick, my camera's off because, you know, I've got two siblings in the room with me or, you know, my house is not, you know, in this kind of state, I want you to see it, right? I'm, I'm always like marveling over the people who have the really great backgrounds. You know, I'm on my back deck right now. So it's like, you know, all those kinds of things come to light. So I, I think it also is challenging how we think about things like engagement and participation. We used to often say, well, the student who talks in class is obviously engaged, but there's a chat now and students are typing in the chat and great insights or in a lot of times witty, witty comments that are, you know, referring something I said, you know, they got the joke, you know. So I I think that's been another thing that's been interesting. And, And I think as a pedagogue, I've been interested in just sort of 
doing all I can to make the space as accessible and as welcoming as possible. That means sometimes I take things off the syllabus. Like, I thought we are going to do that. We probably can't do that. And it's been an hour and a half. And this is probably the limit of all of our attention. We should probably shift to something else. So, uh, you know, and it, it, it's also a challenge too, because I was talking to a good friend of mine and he's like, look, something about mastery and understanding organic chemistry. If you don't understand it, I don't want you going on in, into the to the field if you don't know these things you know. So that's that's a fair limitation. But for those of us who teach classes like mine, which is like, there's no sequence of higher ed classes. I wish there was, but there's only one. So, you know, I get to kind of really choose what's important. And when you put on top of it a period of incredible student activism and a pandemic, you know, an election all happening, I plan for things in class. And sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. And ultimately, I feel we're, we're well served if we had an engaging conversation, we were able to tie it to the readings or things that are happening. But I only got to two of the slides I wanted to get through. I'm okay with that. And I'm just, I hope my students are okay with it too. I think they are. Uh, because, because I sometimes say like, look, the, the slides have great stuff on them. You're going to look at them on your own though, because we only have time to get through three of these. But the conversation we're having is so important. I've been telling students, you know, make sure you journal about what's happening right now, or the way you feel, the things that have been really successful and effective, the things that have been terrible, because God willing, this won't happen, you know, like this, I, I really hope for a very long period of time. So, you know, you may look back 20 years from now and say, oh my gosh, 2020, what a year. And, and here's how I lived through it, you know. So tell me, how do you think that students maybe have changed over the years that you have taught? And do you think 2020 is going to be a pivot moment that's really going to change these folks into the future? That's so interesting, Stephanie, because it does make me feel a little bit, I'm a little dated because I think about teaching in 2007. I remember we had this conversation vividly, slacktivism. Everybody's signing these online petitions on the Facebook you know, that's, you know, <laughs> people are doing this kind of stuff. I have to put this out. I was like the 4,000th person to join Facebook. Oh, my God. Uh, because it started when I was a grad student at Harvard. And I literally thought it was the Facebook was literally a book of people's faces and their addresses and phone numbers. And it was online. So I thought somebody had put a PDF of it online. And I signed up for this thing. And it says, Richard is, insert blank, eating lunch. <laughs> I'm like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. So I literally signed up for it. <laughs> Never used it until they opened it up for people from other campuses. So there was a, a time you could tell this. And a friend of mine said, you're like the 4,000th person to join Facebook. How did that happen? Like, did you know Zuckerberg? I'm like, no. <laughs> like, it's like a total random thing. I signed up for it and did not use it for a good probably year and a half. Anyway, so yeah, one question we had when I first started teaching here was like, why aren't students more active about things? Can you imagine that? 2007, we were saying that. You know, people were signing petitions. They're not doing anything like the 60s they were. I mean, we mythologize the 60s, right? We mythologize the 60s as being this moment. When in fact, it was really the confluence of so many different things. The anti-war movement, civil rights, women's rights. All these things were happening at the same time, the environment. And just like that point today, I say the same thing is true now. We are actually in a space where there's interest convergence. There's people passionately concerned about social justice and racial justice. There are people passionately concerned about voting rights. There are people passionately concerned about police brutality altogether. 
And to me, sort of the Occupy movement in the early 2010s is when I sort of said, wow, something different's happening because it's organized and folks are, you know, doing sit-ins and that kind of thing like that. But then it kind of went away. But the group that was doing Occupy morphs into other things. So a lot of people involved in Occupy got involved in the movement about graduate student unionization, which led to some things in the athletic realm, which led to some things at places like Missouri. Because Missouri, that whole movement about concerning the plight of the Black community at Missouri started from graduate student activism. It kind of grew from that. So I look at the, the threads of continuity, right? The things that have always been in place. But also, all movements need people who are not central and passionate to be interested. So that to me has been very interesting too. Like, how do you get people excited about things? And then people are watching and they're seeing that social change is possible. They're like, well, I want to be part of that. And, and so one thing I like to do is show a film called Berkeley in the 60s. It's a great documentary. And you hear these baby boomers, you know, well past their college years and saying, well, I was living in Buffalo, New York, and somebody had told me that there was something happening in Berkeley. So I got in a bus and I went over there. So there's no social media. There's no Twitter. There's no Instagram. They get newsletters. They get flyers. In fact, here in Austin, there was a paper called The Rag. And so Thorne Dreyer, who's one of the editors of The Rag, comes to my class occasionally. And Alice Embry, another activist, they come to my class and they explain, like, we put out this magazine and people across the country knew about it. They come to Austin. They get involved. They come to school. They get involved in other things. And so that movement is kind of continuing. So I guess what I would say is that it hasn't changed that much, I think, actually. I just think that sometimes there are moments and moments catalyze folks to come together and do important things. And technology helps. But I remind my students, you know, I'm of the era that when you something happened, you picked up a phone and you called people. We had phone trees. You know, when this happens, you call these three people. Right. I did have email in undergrad, but we didn't use it. In fact, I remember being critiqued because I put my email on my, my resume. Like, how dare I do that? You know, daddy rich at mail.utex.edu. <laughs> daddy rich? Yeah. And they were just like, don't put that there. <laughs> your resume, I think maybe it was more common on your name than the email, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how I rolled back in the day, daddy rich. So <laughs> okay. it's like, you know, um, but yeah, people were like, you know, why don't you put your, your email address on a resume? That looks, looks tacky. And you're right. Maybe the <laughs> my email. I'm just saying. The, yeah. So, but but it's it's just interesting to see it because I do think it's a lot a lot of cyclical, right? And, and you don't want to be this person who's always saying like, "Well, this isn't new." In fact, one of the things I cringe in that film is when a picture of Clark Kerr, who's like, you know, one of the preeminent higher education leaders in in history of higher education. He's the president of the UC system and chancellor of UC Berkeley, and he has a speech. He's like, "Every year, students come to campus and." They think their issues are brand new issues and they're really not. I'm like, oh, Clark. I'm like, <laughs> like, don't say that. But it, it, there's a kernel to what he's saying. Yes, every generation feels that their issues are impacting them in ways that have not been. What's really smart is when you start connecting to the generation before you and say, wait, you all started this movement and you got this far. We want to keep it moving forward. And so when I have Thorne and Alice and Hortensia Palomares, these activists from the 60s and 70s come to my class, they always say that they're really energized and they're watching what young people are doing because they're like, you guys are like us. We were the same way. You don't, don't buy the hype that we were all, you know, we had in our minds, it's the 60s, let's just protest and do stuff. It was very day to day. And now in retrospect, we say, wow, what a moment. 
but they were just like, I don't want to go fight in a war that I don't believe in. I don't want to see people beaten because of their racial background. I don't want people who are gay to not have access to, you know, be with people they love, right? It was those kinds of things that led them to do things that we consider to be revolutionary or groundbreaking. Rich, this has been such a, a great conversation. I have one last question for you, if you don't mind. What are you learning about right now? Where's your edge? Well, I'm learning to listen. <laughs> I'm learning to listen a lot because I, I think one of the things that happens in the space where there is highly charged rhetoric and, and feeling, if you're not listening, sometimes you're preparing your response to whatever's coming up. And what I hear from young people a lot now is, there's something happening and, you know, I'm actually being to quote, you know, something happening here, you know, <laughs> stop, right. look, you know, it's kind of <laughs> like that. It's like, yeah. you have to stop and listen and really hear what's going on and hear the frustration that young people have. Because like, look, you told us that this society is supposed to operate this way. We have these structures in place that are supposed to be fulfilling all of us. And we're seeing it's not happening do better, right? And so I like to sort of exempt the Gen Xers. You know, we're kind of in this middle generation, like how do Gen Xers fit in this whole thing? <laughs> but I do like the fact that Gen Zs and millennials are kind of having this discussion now. And I'm just really trying to be attentive to it and listen to it carefully. And then I'm trying to also talk about how we can work strategically. So if you believe in structural change, structural change has to happen in concert, right? You have to have multiple communities working together, generational communities working together. And so a lot of times, if you say, this is my issue, it just belongs to me, you're going to isolate people. And I will say, for instance, the crisis in the environment and racial justice, I think Gen Z is feeling that acutely in a way that probably my generation didn't quite feel, at least with the environment piece, right? But the racial justice piece has been going on since the inception of this country. That's not new. So it's a lot of listening. and It's a lot of making connections. And it's a lot of sort of saying, look, look what happened in this moment when some success was made. Let's study that. Let's look at that. Let's figure out what would, what happened there. Because oftentimes, like I said, people in the moment don't know that they're making history. I've told students I've talked to this year, you know, 20 years from now, people are going to interview and ask you about your role in this movement. They're like, are you serious? I'm like, I am serious because you're initiating and moving things forward in a way that didn't happen before. And so this summer, our student athletes, our students writ large, were very involved in a number of initiatives and moved the ball forward in a way that hadn't been moved in quite some time. It was a moment. And the moment was engaged fully. I think people were both listening and, and learning from what happened in the past, but also saying, here are some new things we need to be thinking about. So it's just a moment of intense interest to me but what I'm trying to do more than anything else is just listen, you know, hear what people are talking about. And then, of course, the higher ed scholar in me says, oh, by the way, did you know about what happened at Kent State? You know, those kinds of things kind of pop into my mind, which I think sometimes are interesting and sometimes they're not. But I do know my students who have marginalized identities usually are excited to see that, oh, so there were LGBTQ people in higher education before? I'm like, yes, <laughs> they were. And maybe we didn't talk about it, the way we talk about today, but they definitely existed. Sexual assault was as an issue. Yes, that's that was an issue when I was a student in school, and 
You know, those are the kinds of things that you all are now coming into, but there are pieces from the historical record that you can kind of attach to, and you might learn some things from. Like, how did we frame issues back then? We had the problem, but we framed it differently. And so therefore it wasn't a problem or, you know, those kinds of things are super interesting to me. So to me, it's just a lot of having my head in a swivel, so to speak, just to kind of say, wow. And so in my classes, I always have a section called high red in the news. And so we, we pull things from the, from the headlines. So this week we were talking about the incoming Biden administration, the promise about student loan, student debt forgiveness. Now that is an issue that my generation didn't really deal with because we went to school at a time when, and it, it, it wasn't long. I don't think like I'm a, a dinosaur <laughs> long ago, <laughs> right, but right. the student debt at the level, you know, $28,000, $30,000 on average for students did not exist 20, 30 years ago. That's a new phenomena, and it has to do with the retrenchment of support for public higher education. So how can you not talk about that and say, we're studying this right now? How did that happen? How do we move from higher education being a public good that me feeling with Stephanie and Jen going to college is a good thing for all of us, and I'm willing to pay for that, to us saying, well, no, y'all get your college degrees. That's for you. Nothing to do with me. That's a huge societal change that we need to sort of chart and discuss. And understanding that history also helps us remember whose shoulders we are. What is that lineage of some of those arguments? And just as you answered the question that we asked about inclusion at the university, there are folks that we are following in their footsteps from the 50s and the 60s that it's important for us to know that. Who are the giants that we are relying on? I love that. One of the most gratifying things that's happened to me this last year is that, you know, I'm writing pieces and using theoretical concepts. And I wrote a piece for urban education and a guy named Bill Banks, who was a professor at Berkeley in the eighties, wrote about black faculty in the eighties and kind of drew out the lineage. And I always said to myself, man, if I ever get a professor and I get to be like untouchable and they can't fire me, I'm gonna write a piece about that. And I did, so I wrote a piece 34 years after that, reflecting (laughs) on that, you know, and so Bill Banks had sort of set the, things in motion and I got to start to follow up and say this is what's happening now and then the other thing that happened was really cool is I was talking about a concept called John Henryism and John Henryism is basically the idea that there's pure stresses that people experience and go through because of racial climate right and so the gentleman who originated that theory uh, Sheldon James a professor at Duke I cited him in this op-ed I wrote for uh, Fortune and I got an email from him And he's retired. He says, you know, I heard you. I read your article and I think it's exactly what I would say. And I think you're doing great. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, so what you just said, Stephanie, the academia is such a nice place because we often do build on arguments. And we rarely come and say this is brand new stuff. We usually build on other people. And every so often those people actually get to hear your argument. And they can say, yeah, I like that. Or I approve what you're doing. So that, that was hugely motivating for me and to have uh, Dr. James and I in conversation. So we have a nice little email exchange we do uh, every so often. And so one of these days we're going to meet up and read the work he's done. But yeah, it's a huge privilege. So yeah, that's... Sounds like mentorship to me, right? Back when we started. Well done. Well done. (laughs) And I was just thinking about people listening to reading your work and listening to your words today and and in other venues that you were expressing yourself to have, you know, maybe somebody right now that in 30 years time will be like, 
And I and I wrote a response to Dr. Eddix. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's crazy. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I will tell you, one of the most fun things that's happened to me as a scholar, the, the most gratifying thing is that I go to a conference and I did a piece with uh, Victor Science a couple of years ago called Hermanos Academicos about our experiences as students at UT who had no interest in academia, but being part of this whole thing and then come back. And then, you know, I was at a conference and the students said, we're reading it in my class. I'm like, wait, 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 there's a class that reads this article? And I'm like, yes, that's what you do this for. You do that for those kinds of things. The, the fact that it might inspire or make somebody say, I could do that. And in fact, that's, that's the goal. Like, I could do better than that. Yeah, do it, you know? That doesn't fit on, the, on a resume, but that's why I think about, you know, if you have an impact in the field, it's the ability to inspire others to do great work. And so, yeah, that's, you're exactly right, Jen. That's that's what I think about being the pinnacle of this work. And I'm lucky enough to have had that happen a few times. So that's what motivates me to keep on doing stuff that somebody else will say, well, Reddick's interesting, but he's off on this. I'm going to do something to sort of correct the record. Please do that. <laughs> That's wonderful. And I know you've already inspired me and continue to with all the work you do. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. This is fun. Uh, you both should hit the road and quit your full-time jobs and do this. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is a lot of fun and it's a great way to end the week. So I really appreciate, you know, I'll work on a theme song for you. Christy Bass here. Oh, please. That would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you taking away from that, Jen? Wow. I mean, I feel like we covered a lot and it gave me a lot to think about. One of the things that I was really kind of blew me away was, you know, we, we had talked about cultural taxation and and then we talked about mentorship and how we often, at least in academia, don't explicitly reward mentorship and recognize mentorship. I, that just really is so true. And I also think we could be more mindful about how we do mentorship. I love this idea of, what did he call it? It wasn't one-on-one, um, -on -one. it was more like a network. Network mentorship, the idea that then it's not one person, so your advice sort of fits in with a whole variety of other people's thoughts. I thought that was really smart. Yeah, and the real burden, you know, as he was suggesting, when people have a lived experience, that now other people would like to include in the story. And so you're invited into a committee and, th and that is extra, right? That's that taxation that before you know it, you've asked the same small cohort of people to serve again and again and again. And of course, those people want to do that work. But at the end, he said, what if we included more people in doing that work? And I think that that's what Dr. Moore's class also helped me realize it is all of our work to know our history, to know the land that UT is built on, to know the people who helped to build this place, the people who weren't allowed to be on this campus for so many decades, to know that story is everybody's work. Yeah, and it makes me think also of another thing that was brought up in our conversation about recognizing the continuous thread yeah. to not look at what the work we're doing and others are doing as instances of uniqueness at this time, but rather a continuation of things that have started a long time ago and to recognize and honor those people that have kept the fire going, so to speak, and continue to pass the torch 
or all variety of issues that we talked about. For sure. And the idea of accessibility. He said he wants his his classroom space to be as accessible as possible. And part of that is using other tools like Zoom chat or maybe the Blackboard discussion board ways that you allow other people to share their voices. And he's finding opportunities now even in Zoom. Yeah, so much. Well, thank you. That was really fun. Thanks, Jen. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information and to provide feedback, please visit us online at texasptf.org. Thank you.